This is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. If you're just joining, this week we're taking a unique tour inside the D.C. Temple of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now, over the last 20 years, I've been to many open houses for houses of worship, but never a Mormon temple. This was a first. I found my way into the Temple Visitor Center in Kensington, Maryland. I was there with a lot of others, 150 reporters from global, national, and local media outlets, all interested in going inside. But before we did, there was a press conference, and on the stage sat leaders from both church and state, including Maryland Governor Larry Hogan. I want to congratulate you and all of the other leaders of this wonderful celebration of faith, community, and fellowship. It truly is uh, an honor to be here with all of you once again and to have this opportunity to visit this magnificent temple, which is being uh, rededicated after four years of renovations and is opening its doors to the public for the first time in 50 years. Since 1974, this incredible temple with its beautiful towering spires has been an iconic landmark in the Maryland skyline along the Capitol Beltway, and it has been a beacon of hope for the more than 40,000 Marylanders who are members of this church. The number of members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has grown in the Washington, D.C. region from 20,000 to 150,000. Today, the community of believers and its leaders are influencing business, culture, philanthropy, and politics. Mormon voters are a powerful constituency in the American West and Republican Party. In 2012, Senator Mitt Romney made history, becoming the first Mormon to win the presidential nomination of a major political party. As part of the opening, Senator Romney led a delegation of colleagues from the United States Senate on a public tour. Now, today, there are 170 Mormon temples in the world, with another 49 under construction and another 63 in the planning stages. Now, they're not to be confused with churches, no weekly sermons or choir practice in the temple. Those kinds of things happen in local churches that serve members in geographic areas Mormons call wards. In contrast to church, The temple is a dedicated sacred space where each room has a function and where Mormons perform special rites and sacraments, what they call ordinances, that they believe draw back the curtain between our world and the divine. As Governor Hogan said, the temple is usually open only to Mormons. Each must receive what's called a temple recommend from his or her local bishops to conduct ordinances there. The LDS Church has no ordained clergy, and the priesthood is open to only men. And for most of its history, it was open only to white men. We'll learn a little bit more about the experience of Black members a little later in the program. Meanwhile, let's walk through the temple, something you can do between now and June 11th. Like virtually all sites of Mormon interest or history, the church requires visitors to be escorted by a missionary or other church member. There is no wandering around here, and no photographs are allowed. But you can see the official church photos of each of the rooms we visit at dctemple.org. 
Our tour guide is Garrett W. Gong. He's a member of the church's highest governing body, called the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. You'll notice as we move through the temple that 12 is a very important number to Mormons. In the Bible, 12 is the number of the tribes of Israel, of Jesus' apostles, and of the gates of the New Jerusalem described in the book of Revelations. Joseph Smith, who founded the church in 1830, believed he and his followers were living in the end times, the last days before Jesus' prophesied return. Welcome to the Washington, D.C. Temple. We're so delighted that each of you are here, and we hope very much that this will be the visit, the tour that you're hoping for. The first thing we do is cross an entry bridge from the visitor center into the actual temple. Volunteers are seated out front and invite us to place shoe covers on our shoes. It reminded me of when I visit a Sikh Gurdwara or a Muslim masjid or mosque, how I'm asked to remove my shoes out of reverence before entering. Even as we come inside and as we go across the bridge, symbolically we're leaving kind of the bustle and the noise of the outside outside, and we're coming to a different place. All of the design elements in the temple lead us upward. Part of the verticality is a reminder that we're moving spiritually. We're starting here. We're having experiences that lead us here. That's one element. Another element we hope you'll feel is a kind of peace and serenity. People have come and said it's the most peaceful place they've ever been in. Crossing over the bridge into the entry, we move into a space that is gleaming. The colors, design, and furniture remind me of a high-end hotel. High ceilings, sparkling fixtures, and spacious walkways with lots of group seating areas, clusters of couches and chairs, creating a sense that this is a place where groups who come can gather for meetings and conversation, just like in the large guest foyer of a fancy hotel. As we walk into the baptistry now, our first stop, Elder Gong explains that for Mormons, entering the temple is like entering a time tunnel. Tune out the distractions of the world and focus on the spiritual matters, including connection to eternal family members. Mormons believe the temple is where they connect with their ancestors. Families are eternal All ancestors will be united after death and after the return of Jesus. To achieve that, all family members must be baptized as Mormon. So it isn't surprising to me that the center of this paneled room holds a vast white marble tub filled with water. What is surprising is the tub supported by marble figures, 12 large horned oxen. We are seated in front in a gallery, positioned in such a way that I can imagine people assembled would gather to witness what's taking place in front in the large baptism tub, equipped with stairs and stainless steel railing. While we take in the size of the tub, which could easily hold six or more people, Gong draws comparisons between his beliefs and other faith traditions. Our Jewish friends always talk about the baptistry in terms of the mikvah. 
the ceremonial place of washing. Our Islamic friends, our Muslim friends, talk about the fact that we can do things for those who can't do them on their own, even the Hajj. And in our tradition, we think of those who maybe didn't have an opportunity to participate in the sacred promises that God invites all of us to be part of. And the baptism is one of the places where that begins. Mormons believe that they can baptize their dead. It's one of the reasons ancestry and family history are so central to their lives. But baptism for the dead became one of the most controversial practices of the church when it was revealed in the 1990s that some were baptizing Holocaust victims, including Anne Frank and other famous dead non-Mormons. The LDS Church officially asked members to stop this practice. On our tour, Elder Gong's wife, Susan, explains how proxy baptism works. So, of course, the temple is a place where we um, do vicarious work for our ancestors. It connects the generations. And so when you have the information about your ancestors, you can then take the name to the temple, you dress in white, and you stand in as proxy to make the same promises that we have made as uh, members of the church. So it's a way of, the scripture in the Old Testament in Malachi is, you turn the hearts of the children to the fathers and the fathers to the children. And we think that's what's happening in these ordinances that we do for our ancestors. As Susan Gong explains, Mormons believe that after death, a person's spiritual journey can continue. It can evolve, that a person can choose to join the church and be sealed to a family, even in death. She shares with me the story of her 19th century ancestor that she baptized by proxy. She gets emotional as she describes doing the genealogy and preparing for the ritual. What we believe we can do for them is we can give them the blessings of salvation through baptism and through temple covenants. And so when you have the information about your ancestors, you can then take the name to the temple. So we believe spirits are eternal. And so, while James Cunningham is no longer on the earth, there still is a James Cunningham in spirit. And he, like us, has moral agency, and he can choose um, to accept that offering or not. From the baptistry, we move to the changing room. Much like locker rooms at a spa, there are two designated dressing areas, one for men, another for women, each with privacy rooms for changing and lockers. In keeping with the idea that the temple is a bridge to heaven, Mormons change into what are called temple garments, flowing white robes they wear only here. Elder Gong explains. Everyone dressed essentially the same in a way that shows our equality before God and equality with each other. We uh, aren't worried about our titles. We're not worried about our uh, jewelry, if I can say that. We, We come and we try to put aside the worldly things. We leave them in the locker. In a way, you try to leave your concerns and worries there, too. The temple garments and description reminded me of the way Muslims dress during the Hajj pilgrimage. Very much the same intention, wearing the same clothes to remove the status and distinctions between adherents. We move now from the changing room to the instruction rooms. This is where Mormon visitors hear messages from local elders or bishops, Like all the other rooms in the temple, there are no windows to this outside world. It looks like a small movie theater, 
with seats arranged facing a lectern. This is where Mormon visitors hear messages from local elders or bishops. I wondered if this was a place akin to Sunday school. It is not. The temple is a special place of instruction. We think of it, if you want to use an analogy, like a graduate school. It's not exactly that. So you you live a certain way, you've learned certain things about God and faith before you come to the temple. And so that's what this would be, is a kind of further instruction on things of divinity. From baptism to changing into robes to instruction, the next stop is up another level. We climb the stairs and enter through big towering doors, and we're asked to remain silent and take a seat. The room is large, and unlike the others, it's oval. The ceiling is high and crowned by a series of crystal chandeliers, 12 to be exact, encircling the room. In the center sits a large chandelier, all symmetrically shaped to create that sense that you are in the stars. Beneath the glimmering lights, we are seated on couches and chairs with another ring of seats along the wall. Everything is white or beige or neutral with dashes of gold and warm colors. This is the celestial room, a space designed to invoke the Mormon idea of heaven and a place to connect with the divine, and it is a place set aside for prayer and reflection. There are no windows, nothing to distract the mind from prayer and thought. When we left this room, Elder Gong asked if anyone wanted to share how it felt to be in there, and a woman spoke up. What did your heart's core, your deep heart's core, tell you or make you feel when we were in this last room? Anything you'd like to share? And like you said, the peace is unmatched in here. Like, you have to make time to have communion with God. And this is time that we're not going to get back. And I'm happy that, you know, I, I'm spending my day here these few hours. And that's what I was able to think about when we were in that celestial room. Thank you. We say sacred space, sacred time. After the celestial room, we are escorted into what's called the ceiling room. Now, these are smaller rooms. The temple has 10 of these. And again, the predominant color is white, a symbol of purity with accents of gold and neutral colors. The lights are dimmed. In the center of the room is a small oval platform with kneeling cushions on either side. This is where a bride and a groom come to be sealed, another sacred Mormon ordinance. Mormons believe a husband and wife are sealed together for eternity. Mormon wedding ceremonies replace the words, till death do we part, with for time and all eternity. Only family members who are baptized Mormon may attend a sealing, and Only heterosexual couples may marry in the church. And while many people associate Mormons with polygamy, it's important to note here that it was practiced only for the church's first 60 years, ending in 1890. This is the place where husband and wife kneel across the altar. They join hands, and someone with authority from God can pronounce you a family uh, for time and for eternity. 
I'm aware that not all of us have perfect family situations. And uh, what I've come to believe and understand is that the things here are to give us an opportunity so that we can make our relationships whole, we can heal them. I had a friend who was asked to come for her father and she said, I had a terrible relationship with my father. He was not kind to my mother and he was not kind to me. She said, I did not want to be connected to him in eternity. And so over the course of a year, she prayed and she changed her heart so that she could feel like in this room with her father being represented by proxy, their family could be sealed, to use that word, bound together. She told me, and we're here in sacred space, so I'm telling you sacred things. She said, my father came back to me, and he was different. He was dressed in white, and he was not the same. He had changed. And that's the hope and the promise, is that somehow in our human foibles and faults, we have an opportunity to be better. And this is a place where God gives us that opportunity. From the ceiling room, we enter the last stop on our tour, the assembly hall. This is just as it sounds, an enormous grand rectangular hall, all done in white, with a choir platform at one end and a set of pulpits and lecterns at the other. The chairs assembled are flanked by 12 large chairs on opposite sides. This is where local members would meet with church leaders from Salt Lake City, the church's international headquarters, or with leaders from other parts of the world. We don't normally go here, but I'd like you to see it because we want you to feel like you've been through the whole temple. Throughout our tour, we've been climbing up through the building. This is an intentional part of the design, that you should feel like you are ascending both levels of spiritual development while physically rising towards heaven. After our tour, I spoke with Emiliette. She is the curator of historic sites for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. She shared how the D.C. Temple came to be. We wanted to have a presence here. We'd had members of the church here really since the 19th century, but it was really only after World War II that church members started settling here in a serious way. And so in the 1960s, we started looking for a place on the East Coast to build a temple. And Washington, D.C. was really the obvious choice. I think the architects, they knew what they'd been given when they were told this is the site for the temple. They designed the temple really to be a monument and a celebration in this part of the city. Emily Utt travels to Mormon temples around the world. Most of the modern temples, those built after 1970, have similar appearances on the inside. They each have rooms dedicated for the same ordinances, the same white and bright feel, the same lack of windows, and the same vertical thrust. And there's a reason for that. For me, this temple is very rectilinear. All the lines are very vertical and very straight. But then there's key places where that straight line goes to a curve. 
And for me, those are places where the most important acts we do take place. So the baptistry, that font, is round. The rooms that are instruction rooms have a curve to them. The celestial room has a curve to them. And it's that reminder for me when I go to this temple that I'm now entering a place where I need to pay a little more attention. I need to be paying attention because there is something higher going on here. If you want to see the temple for yourself, it will be open to the public through June 11th. To learn more, visit dctemple.org. When we come back, my conversation with Felicia Jimenez, a board member of Black LDS Legacy, reflections on the struggles she sees in the church and how she, as a member of a predominantly white church, Find spiritual uplift and support. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices, and we'll be back after this short break. <music> 